Welcome to the Pocket Coven Podcast, where magic meets mental health. I'm Amber Lenore, a witch and licensed psychotherapist. I'm Callie Little, a sex educator and emotional support witch, and we're the coven in your pocket. Hello! (laughs) After taking a couple weeks off and having our episodes pre-recorded, pre-edited, we're back and it feels so good to be in each other's presence and in the presence of a friend. So hello, Amber, and hello, Melissa Lucia. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Today, we are going to be talking about one of our favorite topics here on the podcast, but one we haven't dug into yet, and that is sacred play. As a lot of you know, my co-host, Amber Lenore, is a drama therapist, so sacred play is kind of her wheelhouse. But I thought it would be really exciting to invite my dear friend and sacred play aficionado, award-winning Oracle deck creator, and Desert Queen, Melissa Lucia, onto the show as well. So, Melissa, welcome. And can you introduce yourself? Hi. That's fantastic. Desert Queen, I will, I will take that. I will receive that. Um. So excited to be here and uh, and really have a conversation with both of you. Getting don't know Amber yet. Looking forward to it. But Callie, I feel like you and I bonded around sacred play, and so I think this can be a really rich engagement. Um, I grew up in the Pacific Northwest uh, and grew up in a family of professional artists, and really moved through the world in this way of looking at things as creativity, looking at things as a dialogue, a sacred dialogue. Um, I call it the dialogues of delight. And I really have this in this expectation of enchantment um, in, in a good way, like this. And I say entitlement, you know, entitlement, such a loaded word, but I, I say that in a good way. Whereas I feel like the world really wants to interface and play with us and co-create with us. But it's our jobs as human humans who can get very distracted to focus in and see the invitation and then go for it. And so I, I do a lot of different things. I teach online. Um, I love merchandise. So I have a whole bunch of decks that I've created and books. Um, and I just love to travel and create and hope to do that until the day that I die. You are speaking to my weirdo heart. I love everything that you are saying. And I've really been interested in the concept lately of the world connecting with us. We're so concentrated on how we can connect and we can connect. Well, how about how it's connecting to us? Like how about receiving and seeing invitations for connection within the natural world, let's say, right? The desert, right? The sea, all of these natural landscapes. I want to go off on that. And also I'm going to put a pin in it for the moment because something I love to talk with our guests about is their identity as a witch or a magic maker. I don't know if you identify as a witch, but I do know that you identify as making magic. So could you just kind of speak to that identity piece and how that looks for you? I'm so excited that you asked that because actually being a modern day magic maker, doing that as a profession, there is this merging between the unknown and the sparkle of the magic. And then there's really practical things that you do to help people find you and find your work. You know, that's, that's the process and the product, uh, you know, of adulthood, whereas kids are usually all processed. And so I've been noticing, and it's been coming up, this person reviewed my Oracle deck on TikTok and they called it rancid, which was hilarious. Uh, Younger, you know, couple generations younger than me. Um, And the tags were witch, witchcraft. And I've been seeing that coming up with the people who are a couple of generations younger than me, y'all who are in, I think y'all are in your thirties. Yeah. And, and so it's an interesting labeling is a really interesting thing. Also with all of the issues around cultural appropriation and colonialism and these things, when I first started all of this, it was more um, like the word, the word shamanism was probably the one that most closely relates to what I have 
done and experienced, but I will rarely use it because honestly, I find it really fraught with a false, uh, not false, false isn't the word, a seeking of power in a certain way that it's like a, a wounded ego seeking of power. And the, the, the irony is you don't want to choose to be a shaman. It's dying over and over again. It's not that fucking cool. You know, you don't, you do, you would not, if you, if you said, what's the life path that I want, you would not say, I want to fucking be a shaman. Yeah. Let's just have these rugged things that happen over and over again. You wouldn't choose it. I don't think, unless you're insane. And so, so I've had this dance where I've come to using the word mystic because to me, mystic isn't as loaded with that Western um, power draw. And, you know, it's, it, that's a Siberian shamanism, Siberian word anyway. But, um, but mystic doesn't, I don't feel like it totally does it. And so I've been, I've been feeling out which, and to me, I've been a witch in the woods, with a hut, with the herbs, with the incantations, so many lifetimes. I mean, there's just no question about all of that. But in this lifetime, I would say that it, it hasn't been a term that I've, that I've held closely, but a lot of the people, particularly women that I know, are witches. And so I'm playing with it. I'm actually, and I'm really excited to hear what you all why you're calling yourselves witches because as i say it's it's coming up internally and then it's coming up in social media and i'm i'm really curious about it i love that you are witch curious uh and i i think that one of the reasons that amber and i really just ran with this idea you know the day that it was birthed out of first Amber's head and then mine, and we just ran with it, was that we see so many people waking up to that right now. And we talk a little bit about that in our very first episode. We, is it, we are the witches or we be the witches? I don't remember what we called it, but, (laughs) but we be the witches. Yeah. (laughs) We be the witch of the wood. Uh, you know, I said back then all those seven months ago when we started, um, I believe a witch is someone who is claiming or in the process of claiming their power. I think that, and who identifies as a witch. I think those are the only two criteria. And, you know, to me, witch is, I mean, it's a made up word for pagans, right? It's an ostracized word that is about putting down women. I feel like it's very similar, honestly, to the reclamation of slut. Slut is a concept that we created to put down powerful women and people in general, which is a word that was used against the healers of communities so that they could be killed and replaced with men who didn't know shit. So I like witch. I like, um, I like living my life as a very out and proud witch because there are so many people who can't still, there's still witch trials happening in the world today. And also there are so many people for hundreds of years that couldn't just practice what they believed in. Same with the word fat, right? Reclaiming fat has been a very important work for a lot of folks, myself included. Same with which I do think there is a cultural piece here for sure, Melissa. I think you're picking up on that, right? And in Callie and I's generation, when we were teenagers, there was a big witch wave then Mm -hmm. too, you know? So I think this is also about like we were talking about before we started recording this like reclaiming of the adolescent self or the honoring of the adolescent self. And most children have an innate sense of magic anyway. So witchcraft feels like a way to describe what I've always felt and believed, which is this really interesting universal thread among witches. Oh, I realized I was. I didn't really choose that. It had already chosen me. I just figured out what to call it. 
And then a lot of the processes of witchcraft, like honoring the wheel of the year, self-expression, community with other women and other femmes, that also is a nice, a nice weaving in that just feels like me. And yeah, it's fucking badass to call yourself a witch, right? So, you know. (laughs) We love that. We love that. And that, you know, that piece about, I'm curious for you all also, um, you know, Callie, knowing you and, and knowing some of your journey and particularly the things you've been through in the last couple of years, for me, back to the sacred p- play piece, I I see it as survival as well as, as joy, as well as nourishment, because I, you know, those six word memoirs, my six word memoir is creativity saved my soul every time. I mean that literally being, being an empath in this world that's so wounded. I literally am not suicidal because I'm creative. I literally get out of bed because I'm creative. I, I want to go to another day in this crazy earth walk because I might go on a road trip. I mean, it, it, it literally for me as an empath that, that, creative engagement and that timelessness, that liminal space. Because to me, when I'm really, and I I would imagine in ritual space, um, whatever, if you do journeying, those sorts of things in your witchcraft and within your circles, your covens, is that space is timeless, that it's between the worlds to me. And I crave that. I live for that. I live for being embodied while being able to go into these spaces where time and space doesn't make sense like it does in other places. And so that is how I am surviving, but also finding profound joy and letting go of ego attachments. When I'm in that zone, I'm not worried about any of this comparison stuff that I can do and, and insecurities, the anxiety isn't there. My, my anxiety doesn't exist in the zone um, other than excitement. They're sort of similar, but so I'm wondering for you all, um, how, how do you see witchcraft as, as literally being both survival and then also, you know, the joy and the reason that you're alive? Uh, I, you know, usually it's Amber who says first, I'm going to cry. But like, I did get tears in my eyes hearing that because yeah, you and I know each other's stories, at least in part. And a common thread between us is that creativity saved us after deep grief. Um, you know, for me, my estranged and abusive mother dying was how my writing career was born because I needed to tell my story really publicly. And that snowballed. And then, you know, to get through the trauma of a sexual assault, I decided, you know, fuck it, I'm 30 and I need to go travel the world because I did I started waking up and nothing made me feel like living anymore. And I knew that something was really wrong. So I decided that it was my job and my only job to figure out how to fall in love with the world again and getting out and seeing it and making things even just like a journal entry, but like seeing beauty, seeing things that made me feel alive. That was what got me through it. And I wonder if I hadn't known you, Melissa, if it would have come to me as quickly as it did. I don't know. I feel like you have such a strong story around that, that you share on your website and you share very publicly all the time. But, um, I felt so inspired to save myself through that. And it was certainly, you know, there were little sparks of figuring out the witchy side. There's always been a deep interest in Tarot and, uh, ghosts and just the weird shit in the world my whole life. But it was when I decided to start praying to myself, my higher self, that I feel like I really, really started embracing my witch side. Mm. Oh, that was beautiful. Oh, I have something to tangent off of it, but I'm, but I'm feeling Amber over there. I want to hear what Amber has to say first. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I always have something to say on this topic, hence the podcast, right? (laughs) Always, always. 
my main entry point was was studying drama therapy. One of the first articles that we read and intro to drama therapy was drama therapy is modern shamanism. You need to understand that these practices come from shamanic practice across cultures. There's many shamans of many cultures, right? I am not a shaman. I'm a drama therapist and, um, I pay respect to where that methodology comes from. And another reason we started the podcast is because drama therapy is not the only place where you can find a direct lineage between mental health practices and esoteric practices or mystical practices. So once I was bought in through the academic process, it was just clarifying. It was like, oh, Oh, I see. I had been in case management and social work for quite a long time. And my understanding of what makes people well was you get them housing. And that does make people well. And what happens when they are in the house? How do they be with themselves? How do they recover while they are inside of that house? Oh, well, there's nothing there with them to help them hold on to themselves in that house. So now they relapse and now they've lost the house and now they're back on the street, right? So I could see that the, the structural structural or like pragmatic um, issues around mental health weren't the only ones. There's this whole other landscape. And, and again, like once I felt bought into that as a pedagogy or like a thing that made sense, then I could relate that to myself. And then I could see how all those little rituals I did in my backyard as a little girl were helping me survive a, an abusive childhood, right? And then I could reclaim those. And in my house, I suffer less. Thus, I keep the house, right? So, um, (laughs) yeah, that's, I could say more, I could say more, but that's where I'm at. Wow. I, I just, I, you know, when you, when we were, when we were first connecting before we started recording, you know, you, you teased me in a wonderful way about how I had sworn, I used some swear words, but it was in a sacred context. And I feel like, Amber, you just brought together this merging of, the very practical earth plane roof over the headpiece. And then, you know, like the Maslow's, then once you have that basic survival stuff taken care of, you're not in a tent, then how do you start to deal with the emotional issues and the integration of self? And I, I just, I love the way that you said that. And you, I wrote it down. I'm, I'm a notes girl. Like there's something about the lobes of my brain. I like to write things down and how to help them hold on to themselves. Like that's, I, I feel like that's what we're doing is that coming into this life as creatives, as intuitives, and I believe everyone has access to it. I think some people got channels that were more open. And so I think the people who are listening to this, ones who are sitting here, our channels were just more open to that. We, we couldn't, we couldn't cut it off as easily. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't possible, but that going back to Callie for a minute and talking about the journey piece, you know, journeys within, journeys without, I, I feel like contemporary modes of healing and integration and mental health, um, a lot of them are, are failing us. And personally, even before I even shamanism and all of that was even on my radar, I had a therapist um, Robin Shapiro, bless you, in Seattle, who was doing EMDR. To me, EMDR is completely intuitive, shamanic energy work. Um, it's journeying, it's traveling, it's going to these other spheres. And so I think that this idea either that will medicate or will just use the intellect and not the instinct to try to deal with these things that are in ourselves and are these very, very subtle, subtle things that we've inherited and those those wounds those wounds don't usually respond to your daily affirmation it just they they don't and so this piece back to Callie about the journey i i feel like there's something about healing and and healing that actually gets traction so that you're not back on the street once you got the apartment it it has to be on these emotional, spiritual, energetic levels. And that it also is something with the journey within or without where there's this discernment about what the core aspects of you are. And that usually does actually go back to early childhood. They're usually early child into adolescence. There are things that 
you loved, that we all loved, that enlivened us, that we had passion for, that we geeked out about. You know, I Hello Kitty, I was I was probably eight when Hello Kitty hit in 1976. I lost my shit for Hello Kitty. Like little pencils with Hello Kitty and little notebooks. And like it was at Hallmark. I lost my shit. It was like all Hello Kitty all the time. And and it, it was like my inner child thought there's just this is magic. This is pure magic. And so I think that there's some piece about a conscious journey, an initiation, a quest, something when you're in these times, which will come over and over again in our lives, when you're at these crossroads, when you're lost, when there's a new level of development that you're being invited to. And that was what happened when my husband died and I was 33, he was 37. I was going to have this Martha Stewart life and I was really excited about it. I was going to be a mom and stay at home mom and it was going to kick ass. And I was just like, I was going to give my kids the safe, happy childhood that I didn't have. <laughs> and, and actually I would have, other than my extreme anxiety, I would have been great. I, I would have been kind of the anxious mom, but, but I also, I was a nanny for years, so I could let kids be kids. But this piece after Chris died, and all of that ultimate dreams of what I was going to have blew up. I was dying. I didn't want to be here anymore. So I, something in my psyche said, okay, you need to figure out what these core energies of who you are. And then you like Callie, like you did. And then you fucking need to go do them because you're dying and you can be walking around and be dead. You know, you can. And so I figured out for myself that it was adventures, it was spirituality, it's always it's always been art, and then the land. You know, those were the things that needed. So I went on a seven-year quest, moved to a horse ranch in Texas, then ended up moving to New Mexico, but that brought my soul back and integrated pieces that never would have integrated if Chris hadn't died. And so it was one of the greatest blessings of my life. And it almost killed me. But now I know what to do when those, and I'm in one of those times right now, I'm in a total take apart. I'm having brain fog and I can't, I can barely write. I write for my work. I can talk. <laughs> you can tell I can still talk some, but I feel like I had a stroke in the writing part of my brain. It's so fucking with me because I have business to do to make a living and I like it, but I can barely write. I can barely write. So I'm at another crossroads of what the fuck do I do now when I'm at this point where a, a basic skill of my survival is impaired, deeply impaired. So it was a long tangent, but it just made me think of all the things we were talking about. Melissa, thank you for that. I mean, thank you for sharing your personal story. I'm sure there's so much more to it. And also it's, it's just really heartening to hear the way in which you have used creativity and spiritual practice and embodiment to help you move through transitions and the way that you're approaching brain fog, this really scary and destabilizing transition is that it's an invitation to change. And, and what an amazing way to pursue personal transformation, which can feel so scary. And also you've practiced the other thing that I love about what you were saying was just relating to how it's so vital that so many things come together to create wellness for a person. You know, one of the gifts I think of the tarot is that, you know, there's there's four elements there. It's not all about earth and it's not all about fire, right? And there's so much divisiveness in the mental health world that you were speaking to, which is very like uh, material-based or cognitive-based but oh, you don't see a lot of that fire. You don't see a lot of that creativity because that can't be measured, because that can't be quantified, because we can't bill insurance for that. So, I mean, can you speak a little bit to how the integration of all of those parts, the, the bringing in the sacred play and creativity, how that facilitates transformations in our mental health? Absolutely, 100%. So there's this piece um, there, it's sort of a fancy mental health word in some ways or, or an intellectual word, um, intrinsic motivation. So intrinsic motivation is something that you do 
because you really want to do it. You're motivated. You're all in. You want to go learn Mahjong or burlesque or, you know, whatever it is, the thing that you want to go do, you want to do it. You're not doing it for status. You're not doing it because anyone else wants you to do it. And sometimes things are in between these, of course, but, but in general, intrinsic motivation is, oh my God, I'm going to learn tarot because tarot kicks ass and I'm going to go do that. Whereas I think it's, is it extrinsic? I think it's extrinsic. Um, external motivation is somebody's telling you to, you're going to get some status, you might get some stuff, um, you're doing it for survival. And there's a lot of things in the contemporary world with making money and survival where you do things for those, the external reasons. And so with the mental health piece about the sacred play is, um, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit, of, I'll go back to the adolescent for a minute. Um, because I feel like, as I say, there's a lot of information about the inner child connecting with the inner child. We, we get that. Kids have, they don't have an agenda. There's, there's not an objective. You know, kids are like, oh, here's some stuff. Let's mess with it and see what happens. But it, I feel like as adolescents, um, there is this, this merging of these, of these two things. And that, that there still is a lot of passion. There's a lot of... Um, innocence. There's a lot of ignorance in a fabulous way and, and enthusiasm. I feel like even when they're snarky, God, adolescents are enthusiastic. You know, I think even when they're depressed, like they're, they're depressed in an enthusiastic way. And so this energy of the things that you loved, that you geeked out as, like you were talking about, you know, there was a witch wave. You said, Amber, I love that witch wave, witch wave, um, when you all were teens. And so what the, the thing is that you want to tap back into the energy of those things. You won't necessarily do the exact things that you did as a teen, but you want to find contemporary things that get you that excited, that get you that geeked out. And when you have these things that you're excited about and you feed them, what happens, the amazing thing that happens is that it feeds your courage it feeds your confidence. It feeds your sense of self and value. When there's something that you love that's loving you back, back to that dialogue of delight and that exchange, there is really this natural organic healing and integration that happens where you don't have to go back and muck through the horrors. You, you actually are moving ahead in the sparkles. And, and what's interesting, and even even when it's hard, even when it brings up the old trauma, because here's the thing, when you let more joy in, you might have some grief about how little you let joy in before. You know, this is, it's, it's all, it's a non-dualistic dance, but the amazing thing. And then the other piece about when you're sparked up, like, I feel like this is how Callie and I met is when you're a person who has fed enough of this vitality from things that you like, no matter, you know, what they are, the other people see you, the other people who are turned on, the other people who aren't totally asleep. They, they see, it's like a blue light special at Kmart. They see you blinking and they see it's a lot in your eyes. The eyes are very, usually pretty bright when a person is turned on by life. And so you see the other ones and you go, oh, I want to go play with that one. Like, what's that one got going on? And what can I bring with my magic and their magic? And then what happens exponentially? So, so you get both self-satisfaction from feeding your sacred play and your joy. And then you get the essential non-negotiable community. You get the other people because we came down here to be communal. So the reality is when you, but here's, here's what you have to buck. We have a culture that is all about bottom line, somebody else's bottom line, the cult of commerce. They want to sell us things. They want to tear us down. The value system is completely fucked as we've seen. So there is this piece about you are going to have to, cultivate enough self-confidence to go against everything the, the larger consumer culture wants you to be and do. And, and that takes, that takes some, some, I call it the courage bank account. That, that takes some growth 
to do things that other people might think are odd, insignificant, unimportant, crazy. You know, people will use that. That's one of the words like slut. Crazy is another one. You're crazy. It's like makes it, it totally devalues you. So there, there's definitely, you're going to, there's a great Joseph Campbell quote. It takes a lot of courage to do what you want. Other people have a lot of plans for you. So you also have to see who's around you. If the people around you have massive issues with their self-worth and value, when you start to glow and you are having these opportunities that are really wonderful, they might try to shut you down, um, sabotage you. You got to have people who have enough self-love and confidence. It's always growing, but enough to let you shine and then let themselves shine. So it's, it's an amazing thing when you feed it. And it's a lifelong thing. It's not intermission. It's life. This is how you live your life. Yes, and snaps to all of that if I could snap. I mean, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm not a good snapper. Um, everything you're saying, I, it just brought up so many, so many points I'd love to riff on. Like one, the relationality of play, the relationality of it. So yes, I'm a drama therapist. I'm also a play therapist. And I don't play with adolescents and adults because they don't really want to do that. They like drama therapy. It's a little bit more contained in some ways. But play therapy is sitting in a playroom with a child and allowing them to express themselves. If what they want to do is throw a train against the wall, look, you threw a train against a wall, right? And the parents will often, you know, come at me and say, are you sitting them down and talking to them about their depression and anxiety? You talking to them about that? I'm like, no, I don't need to. And it takes a lot of educating, like psychoeducating, to get families on board with the idea that playing is enough. They are expressing their trauma through their play. They can't not. Play is self-expression. So everything that is within you will come out, rather you intend for it or not, especially if it's improvisational and you're just flowing with that. So loved that. You know, what what makes a difference is that we're in connection, that our regu- you know, that our nervous systems are co-regulating while they play. So they learn that self-expression is safe for them to do, particularly because of what you were talking about, this cultural imperative around everything has to be about money. Every and I I feel it every time I express something creatively, I'm like, oh well, I better make money off of this real fucking quick, you know, and that comes from a valid place of being scared of starving, but I'm not fucking starving anymore. Like I don't have to repost every single spell that I create. I can have things that are just for myself, you know? I identify God so strongly with every single thing both of you just said. And, you know, Amber, when you touched on the topic of, uh, co-regulation, I thought of limbic resonance and, essentially for those who are like, what the fuck is that? It's where you are with another person and you feel your limbic system, your body really align. You feel that resonance with another person. You might say like, we just vibed, you know, it's that feeling. And I think that so many of us who are maybe stifled artists in the way of sacred play, we might feel limbic resonance And if you're me or like me, maybe you get a little reckless with that. You know, uh, Melissa, you know, Lola Pickett, who I'm friends with, she, I feel like she has this term like reckless empath, you know, where you're just like, I'm such an empath. I feel everything, everything, everything. And then you just create trauma all around you from being like, I feel everything you feel, get yourself in control because it's affecting me. And I feel like limbic resonance is one of those things where we think we're co-regulating with somebody and maybe we are, but for those of us who aren't allowing ourselves to play, to be in the sacred container, we can see limbic resonance as like, oh, this is the way it's me getting this from another person. I feel like the difference between the like healthy co-regulation, healthy limbic resonance and sacred play is the, I think the sense of independence. And that is so much of what I think this kind of work does, you know, waking up and realizing you don't want to be here, waking up, realizing you don't want to fucking wake up and saying like, I know that nobody else can fix this for me. 
I have to do something. I feel like that's such an important part of sacred play. And Melissa, I'm so glad you shared the story about Chris because it wasn't like you woke up one day and you were like, I'm going to go eat, pray, love my way out of this grief. You spent seven years untangling that knot and it is a journey. And when I'm working with folks who are like, I just feel stuck. I feel like there's nothing. I feel like I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's too hard. I have this job that I hate. I have expectations from my parents. I always say like, you know, I know you're not going to do this, but think about the fact that you could wake up tomorrow, take one backpack, leave your apartment, move across the country or to another country, legally change your name and get a job working at like an auto garage. You know, you could change your entire life today if you wanted. It's in your power. And there's this great quote by an author who I'm not particularly fond of, um, (laughs) so I won't name them, (laughs) but it's uh, changing your life isn't hard. It's scary. And I think that sacred play is just about witnessing the parts that could be scary. And instead of deciding that it's like a terrifying shadow monster, you're like, Oh, maybe it's actually a Muppet. I don't know. Let's, let's go see, let's go do some improv with this thing. You know, Callie, that reminds me of something that I want to give over just this concept to Melissa, because I think you're going to be able to run with this concept I keep hearing in practice with clients, I want to move past this. I want to move past this. I want to move past this. And I got this little hit from the universe that said, what if they moved with it? What if they moved with it? What if they danced with it? You don't get to get rid of the shit about yourself you do not like. And you can relate to it differently. You can move with it. It can come with you. It doesn't need to drive, right? Callie and I often talk about that like concept of who's driving, who's driving, but moving with it. So can you speak to that? How do we move with our shadows when we're trying to come into the light? That is so juicy. So my, my rabbit, my uh, squirrel ADD brain is, is like, oh, what do we do? What do, we do? I, the, the piece about... Um, about back to the piece about intrinsic motivation and something that is so interesting to you. Now, when you're, you're now, when you're in a, a dark night of the soul, a hazy gray night of the soul, you know, when you're in one of these places where you are a little more suppressed, which we all go through, you know, you're talking about witches and cycles and things. Once again, our culture thinks you're supposed to go 120% all the time, never stop. It's it's insane. So there are times, more fallow times in, in the journey. So that what actually excites you or draws you may be more subtle, may be not as as sparkly, but you you still are going, you know, it may be that latte that you get that day, like that latte maybe thing, or that new poetry book that you found. But so this piece about back to what you really love doing is that when you make this commitment, it's initiation is an invitation. And initiation basically is a process, a journey, a series of experiences that tra- takes you to a different place than who you have been. And it, it, it invites you into new things. And so when you're in this journey of initiation and, and all of these things are happening. I mean, doing visionary creative projects is, is the same sort of a thing. There's a lot of things that happen and the times that you don't know and the times you get epiphanies and the times you have doubt and the times you don't have what you think you need. And then the times where you realize you have what you need, like visionary creative processes and, and initiation have a lot of parallels in this. You keep walking into the unknown. You keep walking into the unknown But what I've found is if you do that enough, you basically get calibrated to understanding that there will be something that will be gained. There will be some more emotional intelligence. There will be new skills. There will be new people. There will have been joy or some project, product that you created or something, you know, because it's not always a tangible thing. But so the shadow piece... I feel like the shadow piece that we've had 
this thought about once, as I said earlier, going back in and, and excavating the traumas that happened and somehow going back in and, and consciously excavating that it's, that's going to, somehow we're going to go back in there and we're going to fix it. What I found personally and, and with the people I've worked with and in the courses that I do and is that what actually is more kind and compassionate and more fun and this is why it's sacred play slash deep play is that the shadow will come in on its own. Like you, you just, you set this container of I'm going to create and be open to some transformative processes. I'm sure it's like when y'all do some rituals and you kind of set up the parameters and you prepare and you have these, and then you get in there and you see what's happening. And so for me, the, when you have, when you trust enough to go on these journeys, you trust that what needs to be healed or integrated will come up and that you will have the skills and the ally and the support to do it during that process. Once again, back to process, you know, seven years, like you said, Kelly, I feel like also the culture has this crazy thing about get things from Amazon in two hours that I'm going to go to a weekend workshop and I'm like going to heal my sexual boundary stuff. There are very rare times in people's lives where you get hit by spiritual lightning and major things shift. Those are very rare. This is people are habituated. They have their habituated patterns. You need to do things over and over again to anchor them in. So this, so to me, the shadow piece is that you, you, move through the world you move through life with this perspective of non-duality which is I'm going to go towards this thing that seems kind of cool like I'm going to go move to New Mexico when I've spent 40 years in the Pacific Northwest I'm going to go move to the high desert and then you go into it with curiosity without an agenda and you interface with these experiences that come but you have there will be this trust and this courage and confidence that is built that you will have what you need when you need it. Huge thing. You will have what you need when you need it for that shadow stuff to be alchemized within the sacred play, the sacred adventures, the initiation. So to me, I think that going at it through the, the deep play perspective, that that, um, it's the shadow still going to come get you. It's there. It can't be denied. They must, they must be regulated. And the, and the best thing that happened to me with aging was that I'm a recovering perfectionist. And that's part of how with my own anxiety, my empath, um, I tried to control and judge things so that I could try to manage and feel like I was going to make things safer. Like if, if we plan and, and judge and do well, yeah, how's that working for you? And so as I've aged, what's happened is with this journey, I found a level of self-love and self-confidence that I prayed for for about 30 years. Probably since I was a teen, I started to pray for a sense of sovereign boundaries as an empath and, and, and self-love to the degree that I wasn't questioning everything I did and, and cutting, you know, literally energetically cutting myself up for how wrong I was in every way. And so that, that, that piece, that, that, that to me is it, the high Holy grail is to get enough of that. So that then you laugh at when you slip back into the perfectionist, you know, like I'm about a three or a four on my perfectionist scale these days, every once in a while, like with my business, I can get kind of triggered with it. You know, I go back to an 11 and then I laugh. I, I like I laugh in a loving way, not a demeaning way, but a lovingly like, oh, honey, the 11 came back. Oh, God, that's uncomfortable. But I can I now have this this resilience with and I'm still controlling. I'm totally still a controlling person, but I just kind of I can manage it more. And I and, and I I manage it with other people. I, I I'm. I don't have the arrogance that I think I know what other people's paths are. Huge learning. <laughs> so did that answer that at all, Amber? <laughs>
Yes, and you answered so many things. And you also started to bridge us over into the how-to, because that's that's a place that we try to go to towards the end of the episode is, you know, how do we engage the topic? How do we engage sacred play? And I heard, I heard so much there. I heard that we need a container, something that we speak to all the time. If you build a safe and regulating and expansive container, then everything will come out. And we need someone in relationship with us. We often need a support person or a supportive environment in some kind of way so that those shadows can can come out, right? And another piece that connects to what Callie was referring to with limbic resonance is the idea of energetic boundaries. You know, our limbic system is our emotional part of our brain. And we should be curious about why it wants to attach to the things that it wants to attach to. I don't think we need to form mistrust with it necessarily, but maybe some curiosity. I wonder why I want to caretake for that person. I wonder why their uh, their wounds feel so good to me to pay attention to. That's interesting. I wonder if they're connecting with a pattern I might have or, right, because it's the emotional center. So what is it doing? Our emotions experience so many things from interdependence to codependence, right? That's spicy. <laughs> oh, thank you. Spicy. Limbic resonance is a dualistic thing or a, at least a multifaceted thing, right? It's like, can we just be curious about why our limbic system is doing what it's doing, right? Why it's attracted to what it's attracted to, especially so that we are being discerning, I think, about where our energy goes so that we do have the energy we need to play. Not because other people... No, no, actually, yeah, because some people don't deserve our fucking energy, right? Because some people will take more than we want to give or that we can give, and they're connecting with a trauma pattern we have. I could go on. But, I mean, what else? I mean, both of you, like, what else do you think we need to prescribe conditions and containers for play to emerge? What do you think, Callie? You you go first, and I'll go. I think that it is a constant process of reassessment. Um, you know, your boundaries might be one thing one day and another the next, and that's completely okay. I, I feel like that reflects my relationship anarchy self really well. You know, I, my spouse and I, every year on our anniversary, we talk about what do you want our marriage to be this year? Because nobody is the same one day to the next. And, Oh God, I read something recently. I wish I could remember where it was. It said to truly love someone is to attend their funeral every day because they are always different. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like what Melissa said at the top of the show, like choosing to, you know, be a shaman. It would be choosing to die over and over again. But at the same time, we all do that. And some of us, I think the pain comes when we resist that. I know that for me, when I'm, you know, in an anxiety moment, because I have anxiety, I have chronic anxiety, I have panic disorder. When I feel it coming on and I dig my heels in and I'm like, no, 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 I'm not going to feel this. I'm not going to feel this. It just gets worse. It just piles up. But if I just let it happen and I like, I don't know, cry or say the really dumb thing, honestly, to somebody else, if I say like, (laughs) I'm afraid this was what happened this week. This was my anxiety this week. I have a literary mentor who I'm beginning to work with. I was applying for an artist residency. I asked the mentor, hey, would it be okay if I mentioned that I'm working with you in this application? I see that you've attended this residency before. Sent the email. And then I was like, What if she thinks I'm only working with her so that I have a slight chance more that I'll get the residency? And then she says, fuck you. I hate you. I'm never going to work with you. I'm going to tell every editor in New York never to work with you. (laughs) And I said this to my spouse because I needed to say it and hear how stupid it sounded. And they went, yeah, that's really, that's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. But then I felt better. And like right after that, I got an email that was like, yeah, Callie, totally mention it in the email. But I think giving in is part of moving with things. And in terms of sacred play, how to access that, how to move with the fears that come up. Um, I have several clients right now who are trying to convince themselves to be writers because they want to be, but they're afraid. 
And I just keep telling them, be afraid, do it anyway. Be afraid, do it anyway. You are going to write poorly the first time you write. My, the first novel that I wrote, I wrote specifically to get the bad novel out of my body, out of my head. I have never looked at it. It was eight years ago. I knew exactly what it was going to be when I wrote it. Great. You know, flush the system. And your work improves with time. There's this idea that in order to do anything, including being playful, we have to be amazing at it. We have to not just play with some paint. We have to be fucking Da Vinci right away. Da Vinci didn't start out as Da Vinci. He was a baby first. (laughs) And then he studied things, you know, none of us begin as masters. And there's this really lovely Instagram stories, TikTok person who has this great song that she made. And it's just like, sucking at something is the first step of being sort of good at something. (laughs) And it's just that on repeat. So I think that in order to engage in sacred play, just embrace the mess of it. You know, I think that one of the boons of the millennial generation and the Gen X group, which I think you are, Melissa. Yeah. You're a Gen Xer. Yeah. 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 We had the DIY movement in both of our generations. We had the messy stuff. We, all three of us came from the zine era, which was very defining for me. And collaging is actually all three of us have that as our main medium, whether digitally or analog style. But I think that one of the reasons I'm so drawn to that is because it's about creating imperfection. It's about fucking shit up on purpose. And that's punk as hell. And that's what art is. It's fucking shit up on purpose. It's saying, maybe this idea is good. Maybe it's bad. I'm just going to do it anyway. Gosh, you know, there's just so, so many millions of tangents, good tangents to go off of here. Um, The, uh, you know, speaking about the container, as, as was said earlier on in this is, this isn't an intermission. This is a, this is a lifestyle. This is a way that you move through the world and you really, you cultivate it. You cult and back to those dialogues of delight is I really do feel that the world is illuminated and alive. Physical objects are alive, that, that there is a consciousness. And then of course there's, you know, the, the liminal space, the, the unseen ones, they're all dancing swirling in this container that we're in. And so it's basically, I think of there's, there's human doing, which I have a lot of human doer, and then there's human being. And, and it's, it's, you're kind of dancing in between those because you're, you're witnessing and you're observing. So you're being conscious and present to what's around you, to what pleasure is drawing you, but then you're also willing to engage with it. And so really the way um, to me is to do different practices and things also that will bring you into presence. One of the easiest practices that you can absolutely do is go barefoot, period. You cannot usually walk quickly because most of us wear shoes all of the time. So you're going to be sort of t- more tender down there. But it also, there's a way, uh, usually you want you would want to do it more on the earth, but you can do it on pavement too. But there's a way that all of those nerve endings, you know, the reflexology, when you're walking, there's a, an embodied presence that happens being barefoot. There's, I haven't found anything else that will do that. And so when you're moving through the world at that sort of pace, you're noticing different things. To me, it's almost like going back to being a child again, is, is that your, your engagement, it's like the acid trip of the world. It's like the world is an acid trip in a, in a good way instead of an empath in an empath bad way. But I, I think, you know, back to this survival piece as well as, you know, pleasure and um, presence around play is that there are some days where um, I forget my value or I'm, I feel really vulnerable or I'm anxious or for some reason I'm really judgmental or whatever it is that day. And basically the prayer is, Robert Ohoto was when I first heard this for, but remind me who I am, which is a a divine being who is 
completely worthy. But some days, you know, or parts of days I forget it. And so for me also, these dialogues of delight and this engagement, these signs, you know, like these signs that have almost no statistical chance of happening or, you know, tarot, like you pull the same freaking card six weeks in a row, like these things that just, to me, that's a sign, even like the 1111, the 333, it's a sign from the unseen ones and the magic all around you going, hey, we're here. Can you, I want to help you get out of that swirl that you're in, that that not enough swirl, that inadequacy swirl, the anxiety swirl. And so to me, it's it's this invitation being aware of these signs and the beauty and the magic, it brings me back into alignment of what I want to value and who I want to be because I forget because I'm human like all of us. Um, and then one other thing that I would suggest, if you have not um, watched, Elizabeth Gilbert has a TED Talk. I've watched it 30 times or something. It's literally one of the best things I've ever seen about. It's 19 minutes. Go take 19 minutes of your life, beautiful humans. And go watch. She's basically talking about how we need a new perspective about what it means to be a creative person because we created something. Historically, creativity was was a muse or a, a gene, being a genius, but a genius was a disembodied spirit. It wasn't you. And so, if you're you didn't have the expectation that you were wholly responsible for what comes through you. I take total credit for being an excellent channel. My stuff doesn't come from me. It's from the collective void, the ethers, the unconscious, the spirits. I'm just a kick-ass channel who can type and write and be on Instagram. And that's needed now. But so this, this piece about something happened, shifted, Elizabeth is saying, where it became on the shoulders of this one vulnerable, very clay-footed, very imperfect and human person that you are the genius, that it's all you. So if it's all good, you get credit. But if like this one doesn't fly, you suck. And so she says, we need to take that, we need to take back that this is a co-creation, that this is that you are you are working with other energies, but you're not ultimately responsible because that's crippling. So I feel like that's that's a really helpful thing for creatives. So just go watch the Elizabeth Gilbert TED Talk. It's unbelievable. It's my dream someday to do a talk that fabulous. <laughs> oh my God, you totally could. I know you could. And I know you're going to love this quote that I ran into for the first time yesterday uh, that feels so perfect for right now. So it's by the late, great Maya Angelou. And she said, when I'm writing, I write. And then it's as if the muse is convinced that I'm serious and says, okay, okay, I'll come. All it takes is starting, right? Yeah, it's true. It's true. So read, also read Big Magic because it will tell you to claim your own authority and try not. Um, I don't know if Amber has big school loans. Try not to get big school loans. Yeah, we're we're big fans of Big Magic. I really love that book. I've used it with groups before to great effect. And there's so much permission. And, you know, I mean, we're definitely going to, I think, start wrapping up soon. And also, I just feel compelled to just kind of put highlighter on something that I'm hearing between the both of you, which is, you know, the necessary perspective shift. Um, cynicism is something I deal with a lot when I'm working with folks and an emphasis on what is true and what is real. And one of the things I love so much about creative arts therapies is that they understand that perspective is completely subjective. I mean, you even look at, um, a very effective treatment for depression and anxiety is narrative therapy. And that's all about noticing how people are storying their experience because they will have thoughts and then actions and then feelings and then relationships that mirror that belief system. So a lot of that modality is about getting people to restory and reauthor what's happening to them. And when I see one, one, one come up, a story that I have is that that's meaningful and that the universe is relating to me. And that is a healthy and adaptive coping mechanism for anxiety. 
I saw something on Instagram just yesterday that was making fun of angel numbers. Oh, yeah. If you see 111 and 444, that's evidence of your poor mental health. Like, this is dangerous thinking. (laughs) And I disagree. I wholeheartedly disagree that there is anything dangerous about thinking that three numbers are meaningful. In fact, I'd say it's the opposite. I would say that's incredibly effective and incredibly safe thing for me to do. I am much more dangerous when the world is meaningless to me. I promise you. Fellas, is it crazy to see a clock? Is it crazy? Well, there's that too. There's that too. Um, There was um, Byron Katie years ago when I first learned about her work, and she is the queen of flipping the narrative that you have. Like, you know, if you don't know Byron Katie's work, lovely humans. Um, it's basically she, you do this process of asking, you have a belief system and then you ask yourself, what if the opposite of it was true? And you really, and then the final question is how can you totally know that this is true? And that's a very slippery slope because not in a, not in a disempowering way, it's really hard to know that anything is completely true, not disrespecting your own instincts. But I think this, this Byron Katie piece about questioning what we, um, how we perceive things is absolutely essential because we've inherited so many things that are so destructive and are so untrue. And there's this great Lily Tomlin quote, the comedian Lily Tomlin of, you know, reality is just a collective hunch. And that's, I feel like our job as, as the witches, as the mystics, as the seers, as the diviners, as the magic makers is to help people have more options of how they see their, their lives and see them more mythically in, in a, in a wonderful, not in a narcissistic, arrogant way, but in a more empowered way. And that, that really, that will, that will game change everything when you can see your life in, in a more mythical way. Yes, and I would go get that PhD in mythology, but my friends and family will kill me. Um, So I hold off, but I agree with you. (laughs) We all know you won't hold off for that long, though, girl. I know you. (laughs) Listen, I'm only 38. I have many years and many selves to greet me, and they're going to do all sorts of things. They have reassured me that they'll be there when I'm ready. Hello. Hello. And and you, and, and go, you know, as I started with this, um, please do, I think Bill Plotkin does this really well too, Bill Plotkin of Soulcraft and Nature and the Human Soul. Um, amazing combination of, of the academic, the smarty pants academic, the intellect, and then the practices are totally earth embodied, um, sacred quest grounded. And so I feel like the little that I'm getting to know, and I've already fallen in love with you, Amber, um, that that Amber, that you you are you are carrying both of those for us, and we desperately need those because the intellect has absolute value. I love I love to research stuff. I love it. Like I I have so many mystical PhDs. I I just because of all of the research I've done, but it it needs to be embodied. It can't just be up here. It needs to be the whole all in the whole being, and so. Do you girl, you do you, you need to go do some more PhDs and you love it and you're going to shine and you're going to bring us more stuff. Please do. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Yes. And yes, you know, definitely agree that it's the both and, you know, that all of those things coming together is what integration is. Integration isn't just that you learn to think different and now you're better. No, it's the embodied piece too. It's the doing and the being coming together in unity, which is the great work of magic. We have had such amazing luck with just happening to connect with incredible humans in our lives and on this show. And it, it's just such an honor to have you be part of our project because, you know, I've loved your work for so long, Melissa, I've loved you for so long. And to have you be part of something I'm making is so, so special. And we're excited that you're going to join us for our bonus content. We're going to do a little deep dive into sacred play and action over on Patreon. So if y'all want to hear that, you can join at the witch tier or above. But before we head over there, Melissa, where can people find you? What can they participate in with you online? Yes, absolutely. Um, 
I am most active these days on Instagram. I, I'm really uh, enjoying the community on Instagram. Um, and so if you want social media sort of things, go there and find that. Uh, I sell a whole mess of magical decks and tools on Etsy on my Melissa Lucia art Etsy shop. If you Google Oracle of Initiation and Etsy, it'll it'll pop up. Um, and then the I do classes. If you go to my melissalucia.com website, it'll pop up to join my newsletter. I send newsletters maybe once every month or two months, so you're not going to be bombarded. I make too much content to be one of those people who sends, uh, and, and I, I just don't like getting emails all the time from people, but that's where you can keep up with things. And the thing that I'm um, most excited about other than the products and, and different classes will pop up, but I have a 10 month long um, adventure play adventure called deep play that starts in January and goes through October. And we have four different sections that we go through. And this is about that getting traction and practicing and changing patterns and changing thought patterns is that it takes time to do this. And so we do all sorts of magical things. The group is amazing because that's part of it is the community and you get, so my inner child, I'm a thrift store fanatic, great love of my life thrifting. And so everyone gets unique packets of amazing stuff sent to them four times throughout the course with decks and and different art materials and dice and charms. And you just, I don't even always know what you're going to get, but um, it's, it's this adult, it's adult swim, it's adult play. And so that registration will open for that in the fall and it's kicks off um, towards the end of January. And it's an amazing group. This will be the third year next year. So look on Instagram or join my mailing list from the Melissa Lucia website and I will see you out there playing and adventuring, beautiful humans. Beautiful. Thank you. And also rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you could. We haven't had a review in the month of May yet. So if you love us and you are enjoying what we are providing for you, then please, we would love to hear from you. It's always appreciated. Brooms up. Go play with yourself? No, that's not what I'm going to say. <laughs> no, but yes. <laughs> Maybe it is what you meant. It is. It is. Brooms up, witches. We'll see you next week.